A maid of three and ten. Have you seen her? Maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you say to my Robert Baratheon? Well, if it's Robert Baratheon looking, then I definitely <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. This is Game of Owns, a podcast that we create with each other. I'm just quite honestly afraid that the uh, maid of three and ten line is going to be just exhausted by the time we get through the Brienne chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just really needs to find Sansa. I'm totally may be misremembering this, but isn't she, when she's in Maidenpool, she's like, doesn't want to say that because she knows that people will see right through her. You're right. It has a lot to do with who she's talking to at the time. For example, when she's talking to Hyle Hunt, you know, there's a history there. So that's harder to lie to him. And then of course, with Randall Tarly, there's, he's literally judging people for lying directly in front of her. So she's, she's trying to think, well, she sees him as a man that she can't uh, fool or to take lightly. So she changes her story. We're just going to, Jump right in, right? We're, we're doing another two chapters. A Feast with Dragons continues. These two chapters, The Soiled Knight and Brienne 3, are from the same book. They're both from A Feast for Crows, and they appear next to one another. And so, with George's design, uh, flawlessly flow into one another. Mm-hmm. And we've got another uh, chapter that's not named after a character explicitly, um, which I always love because I think it's interesting to kind of try to figure out why George named it the way that he did and kind of why mm-hmm. he would break his typical pattern. So there's a lot to unpack with the title, The Soiled Knight. Do you guys remember when you were reading for the first time? I don't know if you looked through the table of contents first. I know I did because we were working on the combined reading order around the same time that I was um, reading between uh, or over the holiday break. And so I, I'd, I'd seen the chapter and I'd seen it in the past before years back when we were making the episodes just from uh, looking at things for creating the website and stuff. So I'd seen the different chapter names and I always just wondered what does the soiled knight mean? Who is the soiled knight? It's kind of like what you were saying, Mike, at the end of last week's episode. Like, obviously we know the answer because we've all read it, but I'm curious to know who or what you thought that meant. I think when I read it for the first time, my mind immediately went to Barristan Selmy. Uh, not that he soiled himself, but that others soiled him mm-hmm. in, in just his reputation and, and everything that he stood for, the way that he was dismissed, of course, in uh, a chapter that we read uh, just several weeks ago, we learned in fact, how much of a badass Barristan truly is. But uh, that's where my mind went because it was a character that we hadn't seen uh, for for some time. And I thought maybe that we were going to get uh, a point of view from from his perspective. Remember uh, that, that Danny is not included in A Feast for Crows. So maybe to perhaps see some things from, from his perspective. Uh, so it was a little stunning to me that it was in fact another member of the king's guard in, yeah. in Sir Eris Oakard mm-hmm. that would not be called by his true name uh, in 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 the chapter title and and I've wondered about that and and I'm interested to know and and maybe George has answered this question uh, about why why choose to not give names why choose to almost give nicknames to certain characters that he writes about and i don't i don't know that they're any more or less important in certain cases certainly um the kraken's daughter which we read last week uh that you know 
Asha plays a a very pivotal role. So uh, I'm I'm interested to learn more about why he chooses to to do this, especially with a name that I think could describe a lot of characters that we've met um, before. Mm. Like you're talking about Selmy, and I think that as we hear in this chapter, um, as Arian kind of alludes to all the other men whose knights who's, who have been soiled whose cloaks have been soiled essentially um how many people this could apply to um and so i think mm-hmm. that not only is it an interesting title but the fact that it could also be so many different people um i think also just for this chapter particularly makes it makes a good title agreed that's a good question though when i think about the chapters that aren't specifically named via character uh point of view chapters um, I think of, like you said, the Kraken Sodder stands out. Um, if we looked at the Soiled Knight, for example, you know, you said like it, it could be, you know, 50 other characters. Do you think that it's more convenient in a naming structure or a naming convention to say the Soiled Knight rather than giving Eris his own point of view rather than giving him, you know, a few chapters before something happens differently? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. You know. You know what I'm saying. Like it, it, you've mm-hmm. got. It. I know that. I know that Melisandre gets a point of view chapter, but it's different because. Uh, hmm. But at the same time, it's like uh, Asha is is going to be someone that we, you know, like we 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 see things through her, and I think that we're continuing to see things things through her pretty regularly. Do you think that she'll get her own named chapter in the Winds of Winter? Do you think that George will continue to name chapters like this? It's hard to say. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm 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 sure he's probably answered. This question at some point somebody has had to have posed it to him, but I, I don't want to make it seem like the characters are any less important to the plot because they have a nickname uh, for their chapter. I think as the series progresses, we we see more and more characters that are very influential have, in fact, titles like this. So uh, maybe in in this particular case, it's just somebody that he knows is not going to be around uh, for very long. And I don't know. I feel like he's kind of, he's almost undoing him before he offs him in a way by writing a chapter called the soiled Knight" and, and sort of bringing to light all the, the improprieties around him being a, a, a member of the Kingsguard and and then you know later on of course um you know he meets a untimely demise right do you think that Mm -hmm. him sort of like you said being not really written off but kind of written off as a as a character that may not last or as a non-huge character you think that you think that that affects how um devoted people are in reading like you think it has something to do with the uh the boredom some folks had with four and five i mean from my perspective, I think that initially, yeah, you know, I think that I've said that before and I think that that's why I've had such a difficult time, not this read through, but in previous read through getting through A Feast for Crows because you've got chapters like this. While if you pay attention, if you're careful and as we'll dive into a couple different things in a few minutes here, there's a lot of great information when you're trying to read for plot in terms of, you know, the big re- plot reveals um, and, and action scenes almost. <laughs> Um, chapters like this, you know, I think that initially feel like there isn't much there that's going to affect the entire grand scheme of things from a first time reader. And that's just 
me and I know that some people share that and I know that some people super don't. So, well, it's got one of the best sex scenes in the book series so far. Yeah. So far. <laughs> well, when you're reading the chapter for the first time, it's like, is this all this is? Like, it's just like a, a little break that we all get to take. I find it um, a different way to have introduced certain families more to the forefront or at least the families that some of these individuals have served or have been involved with like just looking back through the uh, the table of contents in it and, and maybe it was just that when george got to a feast for crows he made the decision oh you know what i'm going to be a little bit more cryptic uh with, with how i introduce some of these characters like the prophet, like the captain of the guards, the Kraken's daughter, the soiled knight. And there's quite a few more after this. I don't you know, want to jump to them because I think that they all deserve their own time to discuss. But you, you're their talking about owns. primarily <laughs> Greyjoys and, and, and those that are involved with the Martells. Uh, for the most part, there are others. Uh, but these characters are not Aaron Dampere or Ariel Hota or... Asha Greyjoy or uh, you know Eris Oakheart, they're they're given these these monikers, and so I wonder why that is. Just for the fun of it, or is there a deeper reason? Part of me feels like maybe George got four books in and, and realized that you know I can I can kind of have fun with these. I'm good at naming stuff. Like look how cool these chapters are named when they are you know other than the the character's name, like the Spurned Suitor, the Griffin Reborn. You know, I, I think it's so interesting and it is mysterious and it's something that J.K. Rowling does very well with the Harry Potter books and a lot of authors do because unfortunately for some, like myself, I, I remember, I think I can remember the first moments when I got a new Potter book. Um, I think I stopped when I got older, but I was a kid and uh, would look at the table of contents and just look forward to what was going to happen. Not that it told you what happened, but that, you know what I mean? I was just interested in like, oh my, like this is Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. It's like, that's going to be a pretty good match or something. And I don't know. So seeing these, that's what I was kind of asking the question before. Like, what did you guys think of the Soiled Knight? I know that this is an interesting thing to to, to talk about, but I feel like those of you that are following along with us in this reread uh, probably thought the same thing. Like it was, it was curious to you. I'm just looking at the book right now, and I've got the the very subtle art over the over the uh, the way the chapter starts with just the title, "The Soiled Night," and it's cool. You know, it feels like an analogy for what a Song of Ice and Fire is, which is a high fantasy story, but told in this kind of cool and modern way. And um, I don't know. I just think that calling the chapter "The Soiled Night" and then having what happened to Eris happen in this chapter just kind of makes sense together. George is obviously very talented and gifted of crafting an experience. And from the very beginning, he he crafts it until the very end. And it's, I don't know. I think that if he wants to keep doing it, he should keep doing it. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that giving up on naming point of view chapters throughout the whole series would be a bad thing to do, you know, because it's kind of like keeping with your theme. That's cool. But if he decides to say, screw it in the winds of winter, or uh, a dream of spring and just have more interestingly named chapters like rather than the final battle let's say it's in daenerys's perspective right why can't it be called something crazy instead of you know danny nine <laughs> yeah i'm here for it i True. mean we get a chance to talk about why eris is soiled and why he sees himself that way which we may not have had a chance to think about mm-hmm. at all if the chapter hadn't been named that way so totally i could be down with that i i think 
that definitely opens up the door for discussion in terms of why give that i mean kraken's daughter right is pretty straightforward but the soiled knight i think leaves room for a lot of discussion uh and hannah you touched on it before when he's having the conversation with with arianne about uh you know all these past men of the king's guard it, it's almost similar to in a way the night's watch and how we learn that Molestown is not that far away that a lot of these men who swear these oaths don't obey them and and there's there, when you pull back the curtain there's more going on there than most people realize and so it's not just really a chapter that's about Eris it's about many members of the king's guard who have found ways to soil themselves and and in fact this guy is not such a bad dude right i know he's a great guy most of the good members of the king's guard have been dismissed um mm-hmm. or, or sent away from king's landing and so this goes back to a lot of what we've discussed about how cersei has continuously isolated herself uh, now i know it was Tyrion, right who sent eris yeah. or was yep. it I'm not sure if Tyrion chose the Kingsguard. Right, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, and I think I think that's interesting as well. And I think that I mean, people may argue that he isn't a good guy because he, you know, hit Sansa. But um, oh yeah, he does say that when Tyrion it says when Tyrion had chosen him to go with Marcella to Dorne, he lit a candle to the warrior in thanks. Um, And he seems to be the kind of guy who takes his vows seriously. Um, And I think it's really interesting when. Uh, Arianne's kind of like, do you think you're the only Kingsguard who's ever been with a woman who's ever broken your vows? And how they both are able to rattle off just common knowledge all these guys um, and even some that Aeris hadn't heard about um, which I think is interesting that it's this cloak that they wear is supposed to represent something that everybody knows it doesn't represent and so I think that I think that Aeris sees himself as soiled and that other people wouldn't really look at him that way because it's just kind of thing that everybody does but the fact that he cares that he's breaking his vow and that he is so resistant sort of not really but you know what i mean um that that that's how he sees himself and that's why i i also kind of saw eris as being soiled in another way and it's related to how the chapter starts out when he's talking about his family and the fact that he is basically in enemy territory um, for someone with his last name. There's a lot of history between the O'Carts and and the Dornish. And I, I just kind of thought about how also, you know, when he eats the food, it, you know, hurts more going out than it does yeah. going in. Like, mm-hmm. to me, that all ties back a little bit to the, the, the family side of it, or it could tie back, right? Like, he's essentially not supposed to be in this place and and he's paying the price for it in in a number of different ways that's a really good point so not only not only is he you know betraying his king's guard but he's also betraying i guess you could say his family these these two chapters uh did meet conceptually with uh mentions of the reach eris okart being from the reach and being of the breed and lineage of those people who did have those historical conflicts with the dornish and um, in the next chapter, in Brienne, we have obviously Randall Tarley and what he's doing at Maidenpool and the visit she had when she visited Lord Renly. So without George, 
having to do the normal thing where it's it's uh maybe less subtle than something like this he very subtly is painting a really wide picture of those portions of westeros that have yet to be seriously explored i mean this is our second time in dorne and um it's beautiful right we're actually in sunspear we're not at the water gardens it's awesome i'm going to read the opening paragraph because thinking about eris okart walking with his kingsguard best um, through the shadow city of Sunspear is so cool. The night was unseasonably cool, even for autumn. A brisk wet wind was swirling down the alleys, stirring up the day's dust. A north wind and full of chill. Sir Eris Oakhart pulled up his hood to cover his face. It would not do for him to be recognized. A fortnight passed, a traitor had been butchered in the shadow city. A harmless man who'd come to Dorne for fruit and found death instead of dates. His only crime was for being from King's Landing. And he's worried for his safety throughout the early part of this chapter, he talks about how he walks around and because of the incensed nature, the inflamed nature of Dorne post Oberyn Martell, yeah. mm-hmm. it's it's not a good place for him to be. It's kind of amazing how much of an impact Oberyn Martell did have on his people without being the active leader, even though he was a figurehead. It's just, it's just incredible. We learned through this chapter um, how big of an impact he had on nobles and small folk alike. And even with the Sand Snakes all locked up, um, talking about how the Dornish people are still, you know, un- unsettled and ready to riot. And what are they doing? Spitting in his drinks and cheating him on the streets. And he says things have been a little bit better, but, um, you know, like you said, he's covering his face to walk outside for probably multiple reasons. But, um, yeah, it says a lot about a lot about what he meant to those people. And Sir Eris is walking through the Shadow City of Sunspear. He is thinking all of these things while he's walking. So the the paragraphs sort of dot back and forth from him thinking about the Reach and thinking about his connection with Dorne and why is he even here to thinking about uh, turning the corner or to thinking about something that he sees or thinking about, again, the rivalry between the, the people and anyone from King's Landing and how dangerous it is uh, for someone like him, maybe obviously more so if he wasn't wearing a white cloak, but it's such an interesting way to get into the chapter. I almost feel like this could be a prologue to a book, you know, the way it just kind of moved into things. And then obviously mysteriously eventually reaching Ariane and the chips that are sort of set up as the conversation with Ariane begins and ends. It's just like this, this is a, this is a pretty mesmerizingly full chapter when you really think about it. And I, it's unfortunate that um, it may be, shrugged off to new readers because it's not Arya or, or you know what I mean? But it's somebody who I think a lot of people wanted to see in the television show. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tried really hard to not be, and as we read through these Dorn chapters throughout this entire reading, I try so hard not to be annoyed about how awful the show has butchered this incredible storyline. And, and I, you know, we talk about it all the time, but I still, as I'm reading through these chapters and as, you know, we read that opening paragraph, um, the fact that we got what we got on screen um, just continues to drive me crazy because there's so much here. Yeah. How incredible of an episode opening would this have been with him walking and sort of darting through Dorne and like us finding Dorne in that way rather than it being a, just, just a canned set of Dorne Martell in his wheelchair and a mm-hmm. bad sword fight. <laughs> and I don't like, I don't, you know what I mean? We don't, it's not fun to, dog on the show but i feel like the answers were all here 
to the Dornish problem and that like they're right here in this book. They're in a feast for crows. George R. R. Martin wrote some fantastic characters. And if you would have left Arianne in, this is the way to do it. You know what I mean? Like what obviously this is with Eris and Arianne and and her uh dominating him is is a show of strength and it's showing how clever she is and it's telling you what kind of person she is and it's saying you know what I mean? Like there's so many layers here that we're gonna unpack, but I don't know. It would have been it would have been fantastic. I know that so many of you have been writing in for years about this, but now that we've reached it in the reading order, we can talk about it in an episode. And it doesn't sound like we're talking about it because we're upset because it's part of the content, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> and I like what you said about exactly. it being or having a prologue type of feeling, and certainly because I think when I read this for the first time, and even when I was going through and reading it again, you don't feel as if Eris is safe at any point. I mean. You don't know what Arian could be up to in sort of luring him. We we learn about their history. They've had a, a fling for for some time since he's been in Dorne, but at the same time, you know not to trust anybody, and especially a, a, a chapter that is so cleverly titled. You don't expect uh, the character to to last for that long. Only up until they serve a purpose, and it's clear by the end of the chapter what his purpose is is going to be uh, but has he made the right choice right he's he's really making the decision uh to defy prince duran and and side with his his love interest and not only is that in the best interest of him but is that in the best interest of marcella or the the iron throne which he's sworn to serve mm-hmm. which is interesting though because mm-hmm. arian brings up the point that you know you are sworn um to the king or the ruler and we have it right here. It's just like, ah, you've been planning this all along. The, the, and he, he doesn't see it. The seeds of, of her plan and of her ideas uh, long ago that eventually led to this point. And I think that she sees the finish line because uh, their relationship is really, really starting to get to him. So I think that, you know, this was like, this was the right time. Obviously it worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She plays him pretty hard. Did y'all get a sense that, it seems as if Prince Duran is is losing his control of of Dorne, and at least you know he's he's imprisoned the Sand Snakes. But this conversation that that Eris has with with him, you know, his hands are shaking, and I don't think that that's just part of his condition, which we know that he has. Um, I, I I definitely think that with Oberyn now having been murdered and the past history of what happened with Elia and her children, that there's this really deep seated distaste for King's Landing, for the Lannisters that just goes beyond anything else that that we may have even seen in this series. And if he doesn't do something um, to, to avenge what's happened, I feel like he's going to lose complete control. And, seems like at least in the conversation that he has that he's starting to sense that but i'm not entirely sure that he knows what to do yeah i think that's a good point and i think that from what i from what i gather like from arian's you know description of of what's going on in these conversations she's having how much she thinks that he's kind of a coward and how she doesn't feel like he is taking the necessary steps and so i think that her feelings and just even just from what we know of being on the streets. I think that you can definitely feel this sense of turmoil that's, you know, continuing to to build and bubble to the surface. I felt like Prince Doran is showing his intelligence 
And I think that he's just as angry as everyone else. It was his brother that was killed. It was his face that the sand was flung into, you know, like basically a challenge. And it's he that's going to have to be, it's he that will be personally responsible for their action or inaction. So arguably it affects him more than it does anyone else. And I think that with his intelligence, he, if he chooses to exact some kind of revenge, he'll want to do it on his own terms and he won't want it to be sloppy. And I think that that's why he imprisoned the sand snakes. That was the impression that I got um, upon first read as well. And obviously it doesn't go there in the show, but. Um, right. I, th- I mean, I, I think so. Like, I think that I'd like to think that, but I, I just, I don't think that that's the general consensus. Um, and I, I would, of, of the people that he's ruling. And so I feel like that should be more of a worry as well. With the mention of Quentin, I, I just, I felt like that there had been too much done, you know, in the talks of the Golden Company and the way the Golden Company is involved with the history of Westeros and the kind of feelings that they have um, about coming home and eventually taking uh, their namesake and their ability to forge alliances how they please. And just, you know, there's so much information. I think if it, I think if this chapter were missing some information or missing a few ingredients that Doran Martell had done and was being discussed from either inside of uh, Eris's mind or something that Arian, Arian was telling Eris about, I would have thought less about his decisions. But um, I, I just have always felt like his character was just kind of a, um, a, a guys, you know, like he's actually strong and smart and clever. And um, the fact that he's so injured is kind of like a ruse, like it's just an obvious thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just feel like he wouldn't be injured and stupid. And so I don't think I ever necessarily took the bait there. And I know that that there's obviously better ways to do it. I think imprisoning the sand snakes was really ridiculous. And I think that he felt like that they would stoke up way too much fervor, way too early and way too different of a way that he considers the best way. And just quite frankly, acted like a moron, because if he really wanted to make the right plan, I think he would have he would have spoken to them, frankly, no matter the pride of being the ruler that demands um, people to obey him. I think he would imagine if he would have spoken to them and been like, listen, here's what we're going to do. I know that you want to do this. But imagine if he was like, here's what we're going to do. Let's do this together. But she's so yeah, tough. Yeah, that though, I can is... get on board with. But he's not doing that. No. I mean, they're in a tower, even the six and eight-year-old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, that's being strategic, right? Because those young women could have been used as pawns against Marcella in some way, or even against Prince Duran. We don't know. I mean, I think that you have to be very careful, but we've seen what children can do in this series. So I wouldn't put it past anybody to utilize a six or an eight-year-old to achieve yeah. their own end. That's a good point, especially if they're playing together yeah. in the water gardens. What's to say that she wouldn't have been drowned? Exactly. Yeah, we don't we don't know. And there's one point where she says, my father is very good at doing nothing. He calls it thinking. Mm-hmm. I agree with what you said, though, Zach. I think- He's he's not the warrior type, right? He he's more of the strategic thinker. He's limited in terms of what he can do physically. So I think that there is a little bit of underestimation on the part of everybody else in terms of really what what he's up to, whether that's related to Quentin and what he's trying to do 
uh, to unify Martell and Targaryen, or it's just an even bigger plan that that we can't see the full picture of right now. I think you know, even in what I asked before, is is he being a little bit reckless? Is he losing control? I think there is some of that. I think that you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, but at the same time, I think like even I'm underestimating his ability to put a plan in place that could work. Yeah, and that's what George meant to do. Yeah, and I mean, especially that bias that I have for sure definitely comes from just having read this chapter and getting a perspective of somebody who, you know, believed that she was never loved as much as, you know, she said she was never loved as much as Quentin and and all those kinds of things. She obviously has a lot of feelings against her father. And so, <laughs> you know, that bias is there and I'm happily playing into it. <laughs> so. do, you be- do you believe it though? I mean, at the same time, can you just see it as her trying to manipulate Eris because who really knows what the truth is? I mean, she yeah. clearly is respected That's enough by question. her father to not be imprisoned. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of things that we can ask about what is believable about any of this chapter from her perspective. No, she totally had me fooled too. Jeez. <laughs> I think there's, I mean, I think there's got to be a little bit of truth behind it. Like, I think that there's got to be for her in order to act the way that she is and to kind of formulate the plans that she's form- formulating, I think that that's got to come from some motive somewhere. Um, and so I, I I like to believe that there's a little bit of truth behind how she feels and, and what she's saying. But, you know, again, that could be me just falling forward 100%. Well, she's good. She's real good. Imagine if Cersei was this good. <laughs> yeah, if, if Cersei was this, uh, you know, careful. She writes him a note. It says, pass the candle maker's shop a gate and a short flight of exterior steps. Eris <laughs> walks in and here's here's the uh, here's just the sentence that says to an ornate the snake music. <laughs> <laughs> an ornate snake <laughs> coiled around her right forearm, its copper and gold scales glimmering when she moved. It was all she wore. George R. R. Martin loves to write these chapters. Of course he does. <laughs> and I think that he's also in love with Arian Martell. <laughs> George or Eris or both? Both of them. Or I mean, it's tough not to be. You know, like, yeah. we, we look at what she's doing and um, maybe because we liked Eris, um, we might think of her as wry or cunning or scheming, almost in a negative sense. But I have a, I just have a strong argument against that whatsoever because a everyone's playing the game sorry and b this guy's a a knight of the king's guard in king's landing responsible for so much devastation and death um especially involved with her family not only her country but her actual blood her actual family prince oberon has just been killed at the hands of the mountain and i know that that's not their direct fault but you know the mountain did what he did in the past not amory lords you know what i'm saying so the fact that she's outsmarting this guy and being lovers with this guy and you know the worst that he has to deal with is the idea of soiling soiling his honor like all of his brothers already do it's like come on yeah yeah and, and there's a, a good part of this chapter that that talks about the different members of the king's guard and, and how they've soiled the cloak in in various ways which ties nicely back into the title of the chapter but uh, one other thing that that i just noticed kind of going through my notes here and and we kind of like touched on the edge of it i feel like she's also projecting a little bit with marcella uh, because tommen's brought up in this chapter too and and talked about how 
you know, Marcella is braver and, and brighter and more confident than Tommen. And I, I wonder for her, is it the same with Quentin, right? Is she seen as being like the braver, brighter, more confident of the two? And so not only projecting onto Marcella, but maybe just seeing her as an opportunity to make good on the things that she never herself was able to achieve. Yeah, that's a good point. It is curious. I mean, I, f- I feel like there's a lot of power that can come with seating someone to a throne. Point one. I feel like there's also a lot of power in sticking it to King's Landing as much as she wants to stick it to them. And this is a pretty solid way to do that. And I guess, yeah, there could be a lot there could be a lot of herself in it. That's interesting. Yeah, I really like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this whole idea of, of Marcella being crowned is super interesting and um, especially as we think about, as you're saying, as she describes Tommen and, you know, remembering Joffrey as we are back with Eris and how Marcella, at least from, especially from the perspective of Eris and Ariane, who may be projecting a little bit, seems to be just this poised and, you know, kind woman who's really been blossoming, blossoming into her own as she's been out in Dorne. And so I think there's definitely a little bit of a, I mean, there's something to this idea that she would make this fabulous queen, um, which I think is interesting to kind of think about. And I think it's interesting to think about how that would actually play out in King's Landing and, you know, what Cersei would do and all those kinds of things. I think Cersei would like it. Which obviously intrigues Eris. Do you think so? Uh, she she loves Marcella and she's also a woman. And I know that it's not the custom in the entire Seven Kingdoms, but it is the custom here in Dorne. And uh, we just explored that same problem and uh the iron islands and i don't know i i just when i when i first discovered this i was so intrigued like you i was just like this is this is this is deep this is layered this is so interesting and uh this is being done by someone in Dorne that she's not even kin to you know this is someone else sort of trying to little finger uh her way onto the throne and uh I just thought it was a very intriguing idea, and it's going to continue to be uh, more intriguing as we go through the book. And uh, again, Arian Martell just kind of rises in an enigmatic status, and I just feel like once and for all, it is a, uh, a massive disservice to the audience of HBO's Game of Thrones that her character was not put into the story. And it's also, I, I personally feel, a massive disservice to the storyline uh, that she wasn't put into the show. I think that she was a character that George R. R. Martin specifically put in for a specific purpose, not only to tell the story of Dorne, but I think she plays a, a larger role in Song of Ice and Fire. I agree. It, it It's definitely a miss for the show, particularly because I felt like Marcella was killed off. <laughs> Look, Doran was killed off. Ariel Hota was killed Everyone. off. <laughs> Everyone that is supposed to be a major player within the Dornish storyline was just really destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so who knows, uh, you know, if, if Marcella's fate is somewhat similar, uh, in, in the story, we'll, we'll find out whether it's in the winds of winter or, or dream of spring. We'll know at some point, um, it seems like it, something is going to have to happen to her uh, based on the prophecy and, and based on the fact that Tommen also died uh, in this past season. So it, it's just the, 
sort of the, you the can say it's a huge bummer you know because it is yeah. really a huge bummer it really is yeah but it's hard we also can't this is what i i'm just trying to say yes, to myself we well <laughs> we can't let that affect the way that we think about how the storyline is going to play out because i think it's so easy to you know read this chapter like we've been saying and say well it's cut from the show and they could have done so many incredible things with it what does that mean for the end game and what does that mean for what we're supposed to think about the Dornish storyline and, and Marcella. And I think that we got to stick with it. I mean, not that we're not going to, but you know what I mean? Like, I think it's so easy yeah. to just get bummed out and annoyed and like, well, this, maybe this doesn't matter. And I just think that one of the things that we are so lucky to have is both the show and the story. And it can go yeah. so many different ways. And while I love comparing the two and complaining about them both, um, my favorite activity, I still think that it's cool that we get to do that. Um, and so I think that we can still, as we're seeing, so much is going to happen um, with mm-hmm. with Ariane and with Marcella and and what that could mean for the end game in a different way than mm-hmm. the show that's butchering it. Yeah, that's all true. Yeah, it, uh, it it's all a good point. It it gives us something to add to the discussion, right? That that we can compare it to. A, one of the most, if not the most successful television series of all time. Maybe that's going a bit far, but it, trust me, it's getting there. We can be biased. Yeah, I, I think that Dorn undoubtedly could have been done better. We all agree on that. But that being said, the show is a show and we get to dive deep into these chapters and these characters and spend time with them. And that's good with me i think my biggest i don't know i have a few problems with it one if arian does have a crucial role um i think it might be slighted in the eyes of potential new readers that may get to the the dornish storyline in uh, the books and groan because maybe they think because not everyone listens to podcasts um a lot a lot of folks are picking up these books on their own and and, you know, what if they think because of the way Dorn was in the show that, A, they're not going to, be going to be excited about Dorn or B, uh, there's no need for them to, you know, pay as much attention or to care as much uh, when they're reading those chapters. I don't know what that really looks like reading with less attention because reading kind of does demand a lot of your attention if you're going to comprehend what you're putting in there. But just the idea of, of a new reader, like if my mom were going to read the series, like just the idea of getting to these chapters and not appreciating the grandeur of the Dornish parts of the, like I, to me, arguably they're the more beautiful nuanced things. We're not in the riverlands surrounded by trees and like little animals in the brush, you know, like we're, we're around sweeping deserts and planky town and the shadow city, a whole new city with a, with a whole uh, new bright and enigmatic character. And uh, they're going to have some of their family out in Essos around Daenerys. And we've got a Kingsguard. And we've got, you know, Princess Marcella. And it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's so much here that that I think would have been so successful for the show. I think that the show, like, people would have cheered if they, not and not even just book readers. I think that casual audience members would have seen Eris walking through the shadow city and been like, this is a cool scene or even the sex scene with the uh, Eris and Arianne and like the plotting that's coming out of it and the strength of her character and the plotting that she's doing, I think would have, would have clicked a whole lot better than this is the water gardens. Look how pretty <laughs> it is. Look how mean the sand snakes are. 
look how lame he is. Look how strong <laughs> he is. Yeah. And here's Jamie and Braun. Like, I just feel like it, it wasn't a question <laughs> of time. I feel like it was a question of just, oh, we don't need that is what it feels like to me. Mm-hmm. Like they, I think that they felt like they didn't need it because everything else was so good. And it's like, sure, that's a good problem to have. But there's a reason why uh, Alexander Siddig is quoted talking about how many episodes he plays Prince Dorian, how many episodes he was uh, blocked out for and how little it ended up being. Because I think that decision to do what happened in season six in the first episode was in response to how poor the Dornish storyline you know, worked in the yeah. fifth season. And to me, like, you have this great power struggle that's going on between the family in terms of what they want to do with Marcella, right? And that was completely just twisted and you still have a family power struggle, right? Because it was really between Prince Duran and Alaria in the show. But it was just Alaria and the Sand Snakes went out, they kill Duran, they kill Ariel Hota, they kill Marcella, end of story, right? Whereas in the books, it, it's so much bigger than that. And we don't it's know epic. how it's going to play out, but to me, it would it, it would just have been better to see it develop from all these different perspectives. And then like you're, you're watching the show, but you don't know who's going to win out. You know, is it the one who wants to raise her to power? Is it the one who wants to just kind of keep her safe in the water gardens for the rest of her life? Or is it the one who wants to kill her? Right. So to me, that's much more appealing than, than what they decided to do. Yeah. Yep. I agree a thousand percent instead of just clearing house. We get both. So, you know, <laughs> we get both. Like better. <laughs> we get I mean, both these episodes don't are know. fun, you know, like yeah. reading these chapters and then, and then talking about them, discussing them. I just wish that, everyone else had this experience. You know what I mean? The, the person that's never going to read a song of ice and fire. I wish that they understood how cool Dorne was the, the southernmost kingdom and the seven kingdoms and how much history there is there and how much it has to do with, uh, what's happening and what will eventually happen. You know, I just, I just feel like season seven is going to come around. We're going to get this big cold season seven. It's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I feel like we've been getting a lot of that. You know, I think it would have been really interesting. I think if the show would have, would have really spent time in a different place and let us play around with some characters in a different place. That well, were maybe different. the, maybe the game of Thrones spinoff will be, <laughs> I don't think they're ever going to go there again. <laughs> Not even to the tower. I, j- I just don't know. Mm-hmm. But this chapter was great. And like like I said earlier, I felt pretty quick on that um, she was just taking so much advantage of this poor guy. And uh, he's not too mad about it. I think if he had enough sense, he, he can it. understand. Yeah. But she, she poured it on. She knew exactly what to say. She pounced on the right moments. And for the sake of time, because we've talked a whole lot about Dorne, um, she gets him on board. I think my note is she gets him. Um, he agrees. She her, her proposition is, listen, if Marcella comes to power, you can take me or you can be with me and protect her and be a king's guard. She's like, I'll take you on as my paramour. You know, like we can do this thing. We can build the future that we want. And for her, she's painting it as love. She's legitimately people. She's legitimately saying like, this would help us be together. 
Mm-hmm. And also, Marcella deserves it, but this would help us be together. And he's like, yeah, she's right. It just works so well. Well, and she plays into his desire to protect Marcella. I mean, he talks about at the beginning of the chapter how he doesn't even like leaving her at all. And so, like you're saying, Zach, they get to the end of this chapter and she's talking about how they can be together. And this is about protecting Marcella. And this is, you know, he'll do that at any cost, even that, even if it means getting her the crown. And, you know, it really plays into, I don't want to say his ego, but his desire to really live up to the job he was tasked with and the oath that he took as as mm-hmm. part of the King's Guard who's here to protect Marcella. So mm-hmm. she uh she knocks it out of the park. Kills it. Mm-hmm. And another huge glaring hole the HBO series is missing was the inclusion of another character, uh Nimble Dick. <laughs> <laughs> if you are reading along with us and you're not using the audiobook, find a copy of the audiobook and just listen to Nimble Dick's voice. Can you do a... Yeah. I've never listened to the audiobook. Can you do a little recreation for us? I'm trying to think. I, I'll have to get a quote. Oh, okay, fine. The last sentence of the chapter, which I think was just, like I said, George R. R. Martin's a master. Subtle, but just so funny and so cool. The last sentence. I need to see a man about a horse. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I kind of liked it. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. hilarious. But that doesn't really mean anything. I laugh all the time. Did you laugh at all in this chapter? No, actually. I'm so, and we'll get into it. I'm so bothered by Brienne and, and what happens to her and, and her journey through this chapter that I hate everything about it. Which part? Um, Just how she, this whole story about what happens to her and why she hates Randall Tarly and, and Heil and all of them and these awful things that have happened to her and the fact that she then has to come back and kind of face them and, and why yeah. she caught onto Renly because she, he treated her kind for the first time with all these men who just were horrible to her. And then, you know, the fact that Randall Tarly has to do what he does and blah, blah, blah. We can get into that a little bit more, but I just feel like well, he's still horrible to-, to her too. It's not. Yeah, he is. He, he, he didn't just stop. Yeah. That's the thing. What did he say? Like, if if you go and get raped, like, don't come complain to me. You basically asked for it by being here and pretending you're a knight again. It is awful. And I wrote in all caps in my notes, no wonder why Sam hates his dad. (laughs) Because I think this is just another insight into the fact that he's this awful character. And not only do we love Brienne, but just in general, I think that his whole demeanor and his things that he's saying and the way he's carrying himself and everything everything is the worst and so mm-hmm. i think that like i said the biggest takeaway that i had which i wrote in all caps is no wonder sam hates his dad because just read this chapter this this chapter was a for me anyway was was like a bad mix between on the road again and uh, a horrible flashback sequence i mean <laughs> from from beginning to end hannah you were talking about how everything that happened at, at renley's camp um and and her conversation with Randall Tarley, but even the beginning of the chapter, you know, when when she's going pla- past the place where Cleo's Frey was killed, where they were captured by the Brave Companions, it's just I, I almost wonder if it it's telling in a way. You know, she's trying to find this guy, Nimble Dick, but given everything that precedes it, is it a good thing that she finds him because i feel like it's just a bad omen leading her in this direction yeah that's a good point 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. I found it difficult to, on my first read, think seriously about Nimble Dick or think seriously about what she's doing, because I think this chapter falls prey to what the previous Brienne chapter fell prey to, uh, which was we know that what sh- the way she's looking for Sansa isn't a great way to look for Sansa. We also know where Sansa is. So it's like we're we're seeing Brienne basically spin her wheels and waste time uh, traveling uh, north from King's Landing and eventually making it to Maidenpool, eventually making it to Randall Tarly, eventually making it to Nimble Dick. You know what I mean? So not only are we going through these places that we that we don't like, but uh, we're uh, we're basically spinning our wheels and right. hoping that she doesn't yeah. get her on the, the road again. That's what I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like it's so easy to just feel this intense sense of like pessimism and hopelessness when it comes to Brand's entire journey, especially in this book, because like you're saying, she's fighting this losing battle. She's kind of spinning her wheels. We know that the answers are out there and we can't yell it at her. And I think that over and over again, as she has her whole life, which we see through her memories and recollections in this chapter, she just has been fighting this uphill battle. And I think that, I think that there's like two arguments in the sense of this whole pessimistic overview of, I would honestly argue for a feast for crows as a whole, whether that's George R. R. Martin being overly pessimistic. I've said that word like 12 times, but, or if it's just, you know, realism and that's what life is really like. And I think that that leads to an interesting discussion just at, with the book as a whole, which may be better fit for when we finish. But I just think that, Every Brienne chapter, it's just like being dragged to the mud, literally and figuratively, <laughs> you know, and this mm-hmm. this was no exception. Well, I think it serves a good purpose. And we certainly get some interesting uh, revelations about Westeros from the time of Robert's Rebellion and on in her later chapters with other people that she meets. But now specifically, I felt like, uh, especially at the beginning of this chapter, that for the first couple pages, this was the Podrick Payne chapter, you know, like we were learning all about Podrick's past, and that that's helpful because he's been around for a long time, and he's going to be around for a time further. And we haven't really understood his his story or understood him as much as we could. Um, you know, we kind of saw him as an eager boy, but there's so much more to him to that, and we'll learn that. And we kind of have an intuition, and we know that. But um, within this chapter, that she's spinning her wills, and like you were saying, Hannah, like how it just kind of feels like like what she's thinking of isn't fun. The way she's treated isn't fun. You know, what happens with her and Nimble Dick won't be fun. So none of the, none of these things are good, but but these chapters were, were written for a specific purpose. Like, George, I don't think he searched for a thing to give Brienne to do and then had her do that in A Feast for Crows. I think on my first reread, it kind of felt that way to me because I knew that Sansa wasn't going to be found by her in this way. It just wasn't going to happen. But the more that I opened my mind and kind of understood what George was doing, it made a lot of sense. Like, for example... Um, a lot of this chapter is also learning about Randall Tarley, which feels kind of random, right? Yeah. Like we're learning so much about this character, but if we're to discern that his Valyrian steel sword will be a story point later in the future, this was the perfect casual way to set it up. Sam was set up, set him up early on. And why not give us a lens like Brienne, who we love and who is always mistreated uh, to meet Randall Tarley through for the first time? What a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I exactly. mean, what a way just, to meet him. <laughs> he's just as big of an asshole as he's made out to be by Sam. And he's he's just this 
uh, like, like, I don't know, he's just a complete asshole. But you can tell he's a smart guy, right? With, with the precision that he doled out those judgments and how well Maidenpool is coming back mm-hmm. and his principles on idle men need to get to work and the fact that you know the outlaws are gone and the last place last time we were here it was it was fucking chaos but now like there is some order but unfortunately you know he's still misogynistic and terrible and um it really goes beyond that word honestly it's and i feel like he stuck his tail between his legs a little bit right and the fact that he supported renly initially and now here he is um really doing his best to to earn a reprieve no yeah that must have been hard for him. I don't so care. I, it was hard for him. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I, I do agree, Zach, with what you were you, you were talking about this earlier. Like George R. R. Martin wouldn't have r- written these chapters for Brienne without a purpose. And, and and I feel like, particularly in a feast for crows, a lot of it is character development and 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 revelation about um like different different parts of these individuals. And this is just such a brutal chapter as so many have been for Brienne from start to finish. Like I said earlier, you know, the, the way that it starts out, she's having these, these memories flood, you know, back to the surface of, of, of what transpired during her journey with Jamie. You know, when she comes upon this, this couple, um, you know, that, that are traveling the road, she, she can't even, and, and I don't think there's much she can do about it, but, this woman, the, the way that she looks at her, right, and and then Brienne goes on, or 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 George goes on to describe it as the maid of Tarth had seen such eyes before. Lady Stark had been kind to her, but most women were just as cruel as men. She could not have said which she found more most hurtful: the pretty girls with with their waspish, t- waspish. I don't know how the fuck to say waspish. that. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you say it. <laughs> the pretty girls. Say that five times fast. Waspish tongues <laughs> and brittle laughter, or the cold-eyed ladies who hid their disdain behind a mask of courtesy. And common women could be worse than either. So, I mean, just because of her height, her looks. She can never catch a break, and it, it doesn't matter who she encounters, really, with the exception of Padraig. <laughs> like, Padraig yeah. doesn't care. Like, yeah, he calls her sir every once in a while, but it's by mistake. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't know any better, and he's like, he's one of the most loyal people that she could possibly find. And I feel like because of all these other encounters that she's had, she doesn't feel like she can put much trust into anybody but the reality is she could really benefit from having Podrick by her side i think so absolutely and i think that yeah especially as she continues to train him as she's kind of taken up training him he's only going to continue to be loyal to somebody who he too hasn't necessarily been or he too hasn't necessarily felt like he's been treated fantastically um throughout his life and so i think that I think that Podrick is kind of like a ray of sunshine, especially with Brienne and then through her chapters. Um, and I really loved what, what Brienne had said about him at the beginning when um, she's talking about how he just is awful at fighting. And she goes, if he had survived the Battle of Blackwater Bay, as he claimed, it could only be because no one thought him worse at the killing, um, mm. which I thought was kind of funny probably also true probably also true it's like nine-year-old kid nine-year-old looking kid running around the battle of blackwater bay (laughs) (laughs) trying to give Tyrion his axe 
it's just the Brienne's problem with other women or her her problem with with disdainful men as well. I think all stems from the same place, which is they can't handle the fact that she wants to try hard. You know, it's the, it goes beyond schadenfreude. Like, of course, they wish for her to fail. Of course, they, you know, like wish for her to lose every melee she's ever been in and blah, blah, blah. And this is the same reason why they they could not treat her well uh, when she was in high yard. And it's less so for that because she was still a kid and uh or still very young at least and i think a lot of it did have to do with just kind of these these guys getting together and being assholes about her looks um and thinking that that was funny i think a lot of it probably was informed by the fact that she was i guess air quotes boyish and wanted to do things with combat rather than knitting a lot like aria but um like in this case with other women it's like they probably are upset that she's a badass and she's in armor and that she's trying so hard and she's not basically just giving up to the way that the world is supposedly supposed to work. And I feel like that's the same thing that Arianne's doing. And that's it's really the same thing that all of our scheming or, or brave characters are doing. They're pushing against whatever that current reality is. And uh, sometimes they're insulted for it. Sometimes they're not. And I think that in Westeros, certainly you're more likely to be insulted for trying if you're a woman. Big time. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what's happening with Brienne, and uh, it's a shame. But she's fucking tough, man. She does she it is. anyway. She is, and that's the thing is she, she is, and she continues. She's thinking about how different her life could be if she hadn't, you know, the, the man she'd been betrothed to at a young age had died of a chill, and and she says, you know, she wouldn't be where she is now. Um, she would be at home with a kid, you know, and I think that she is on the path that she is because she, I hate, I don't want to say, I was going to say she followed her heart. I hate that so much, but she just has been unapologetically herself and she's kind of carved her own path. And we talked about that, you know, with the last couple of chapters we've read. And and as you're mentioning, you know, all these women who have a hundred percent fought against what they were supposed to do and who they're supposed to be to go their own way and to, figure out things for themselves and to get what they want. And I think that Brienne has this really interesting moment um, where she thinks about this life that she could have had as a mother or as a different kind of woman, the woman that she was you know, supposed to be, um, where it says it made her feel, feel a little sad almost and also a little relieved. And I think that's such a womanly thought. I think that's such like a, a burden that I'm sure not only Brienne, but every other person that we're talking about who's um, fighting their own way feels. And I think that that's such a huge insight into what it's like to be a woman in Westeros is is when she talks about feeling both sad and relieved that she is where she is and not somewhere else. Beautifully put. I feel exactly the same way. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> and the episode there. And we get all this, this insight <laughs> no. directly followed by guards you know they're supposed to be this is where the security is for god's sakes you know she's she's traveling with this couple a uh, very young wife very much older man and um they're bringing eggs for dickens to be wedding so dickens gonna be married congratulations dickens they like you know are stealing the eggs and taking what they want and they were gonna they were gonna take that guy's wife they're like oh she's like come on like, yeah, I understand stealing stuff. All right. You guys are going to be assholes. Fine. But that kind of went from zero to 100 really quickly. And Heil Hunt saved the day. 
you know, his past transgressions aside, like that dude came in there and saved the day. Yeah. It's just an indictment on the society that they're living in. And, and even though this war of the five Kings is over, you still have these types of individuals that think that they can do and, and say as they please. And maybe it's situationally dependent, but they clearly thought that they could take advantage of this farmer and, and his wife, girlfriend, whatever, like whatever the situation was. Uh, it's just, and, and we know that this happened on both sides, right? Because even earlier in, in the chapter, there's mention of what, of the wolves and, and what they did uh, to certain people. So it's just, it, it's this A world. Feast for crows, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. These, they're feasting upon opportunity and yep. they saw a lot of it there and not just to have some eggs, but to take what, take what they want because it was right in front of them and who was going to stop them. And we get a really nice title drop for Feast with Crows indirectly when uh, she enters the dock area where Randall's doling out his judgment and she sees uh, the dead bodies of, of previously punished people uh, being eaten by the crows. And it's basically being mentioned as a feasting ground for the crows. And in the previous chapter, uh, Ariane was telling uh, Eris about the Dance of Dragons and how, you know, the succession was a, a huge, I mean, was was the, the spark that lit that situation up. And I just got to thinking, like, how neat, like, it, it would have been to be, uh, even if there was no show, uh, let's say, especially if there was no show, to be, imagine being a reader of this book series and it's like the, the titles dropped for the next book and when the next book comes out and they like release the title however many months in advance it's like dance oh like that's gonna be crazy because i know that the real dance of dragons was crazy so this mm-hmm. next book's gonna be so cool i just thought that that was really neat by george to do mm-hmm. yeah i like that yeah definitely and and kind of to jump back to lord randall while he's passing judgment and down down there doing his thing it just made me think about uh could you imagine if cersei had taken kevin's advice and made him her hand and like what their interactions would have been and like how that relationship would have looked like because um this whole chapter i was just kind of thinking about thinking about that and and how insane that may have been that would have been awesome but i really did feel like we were learning a lot about randall tarley for a specific reason learning a lot about podrick and um again the stuff with nimble dick that she eventually went to the stinking goose and again fantastic uh, name for a tavern george R. R. martin uh, she goes to the sinking goose. She plies him with silver stag, silver stag, silver stag, golden dragon, and gives the information. Uh, she's asking for a fool. You know, come on, Brienne. And uh, he says, oh, yeah, I've seen one. And again, we don't know if it's truth or lies at this point. But um, she chooses to trust him because what other leads does she have? You know, she learned in this chapter that Lysa Aaron was killed by a singer. And so there was really no reason for her to go to the Vale. So she's just kind of at a loss. What what do I do next? And she's being plagued by all these these thoughts, and she's being plagued by the presence of these people that were problematic to her in her past. And uh, you know, she she chooses to go with it. So they're going to go up to Cracklaw Point at the Whispers. That was beautifully described, and we'll get more into obviously on our next chapter with Brianna. She travels toward the Whispers, but it's one of my favorite parts of a Feast for Crows, and seeing it begin is pretty neat. The whispers, mm. yeah, it's so creepy, cool. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Yeah, I, I just, I can't 
understand why Brienne would even begin to trust this person. She has a lot of confidence in herself, I guess, you know, to not walk into a bad situation, but still. It's like, what other option does she have, though? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. she's got nothing and especially being where she is surrounded by the people that she's surrounded and all the terrible things that they've done to her and how she feels about herself while she's here. Like, I don't what else can she do other than kind of go with with whatever semi lead she's got? I, I don't have an answer. I mean, she she doesn't right now have that many alternatives. The The only one would be to just go home or or just stop searching for Sansa and Arya but I don't think that she has that in her like she's she's that's, like, that's she almost not an has option a mission. Mm-hmm. yeah she has her mission and she wants to see it through we've reached that point again in the episode we're gonna give Owens now no you've been waiting for it okay I'll get my own first do it I have a couple of them but so maybe people will take wow. the other ones but um well I have tons of Owens for this chapter and none for the other one so there we are hmm. but my own for this chapter goes to when we're talking about when um, Brienne and Podrick meet the couple along the road and Brienne thinks the boy seemed almost pleased by the prospect of being taken for an outlaw. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so great. So Podrick Payne. I'm giving my own to George's mention, very casual mention of a barefoot holy man walking with a small handful of followers. Just these small little droplets of uh, those men that eventually become, I'm assuming, the Faith Militant, these sparrows, this high sparrow. Yeah, that's a good catch. I'm going to give my own to Randall Tarley. For the seven finger thing? When he said, if you have any regard for your virtue or the honor of your house, you will take off that mail, return home, and beg your father to find a husband for you. What a dick. Yeah. I, like, is Mikey going to say something good about this? Like, <laughs> like when he says, this is a war and not a harvest ball. Oh, I just like, I, like there's so many things and I know we're in own. So there's so many things we didn't touch on that. He just is so awful. So it's probably for the best that we just slip over a lot of those things. And for the heiress Oakheart, I mean the soiled knight, chapter i'm gonna give my own to marcella in this chapter um when eris talks about how she takes to dornish feud as quickly as she took to her dornish prince and i think i just think it's great that she's just loving her little life here and so my own to her for doing it up in dorn for enjoying it while she can yeah i'm gonna give my own to arian martell for existing yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like it period (laughs) Uh, i'm gonna give it to Sir Eris Oakhart um, when he's quote unquote thinking and he says I see only her a dragon might have been peering in the window and I would never have seen anything but her breasts her face her smile could you imagine like Drogon just popping his head in the window yeah. and Sir Eris is just like I was thinking when Hannah was his yeah. own and you were talking about how well George was just writing this complex female or female emotion uh, with Brienne, and I was like, well, he's pretty much doing the same with Aeris. <laughs> I think it's about time then that uh, we check out what the listeners sent in for their owns for these chapters. I'm sure they probably outdid us, as always. Also, the first one we have on Facebook from Reese Palazzolo says, for the Soiled Knight, Aeris, Aeris 
Oakheart is owned by the Fiery Dornish Food. You know it's hot when it burns more coming out than going in. <laughs> People love that. <laughs> For Brienne, my own goes to Pod, who can't seem to figure out whether Brienne is a sir or my lady. He'll get there. Emily Filio. Arian gets my own for playing Sir Eris like a fiddle. Is he really that thirsty? <laughs> also, I'm listening to the audiobooks and I should have worn headphones for this chapter. <laughs> hashtag sorry roommates. Hashtag not porn. Hashtag I promise. That's funny. And for Brienne's chapter, I got to give the own to Randall Tarley. You think too much. So much shade. Or hashtag so much shade. Jay Wells tweeted in at King Wells. Own to Lord Tarley for calling Littlefinger a quote, up jump jackanape whose only skill is counting coppers. What the hell is a jackanape? <laughs> I'm not sure. Not not good. Uh, and Wilson Pruitt, his own goes to Marcella for kicking Tristane's butt at Cybass. We need to get a Cybass table at Con of Thrones. Oh, that's a good idea. We have to invent the game first. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. We got time. Next up, we have Rune on Twitter who says, own to Marcella for owning Prince Tristane at the Cybass table. Tywin's intelligence skipped a generation. And the lady herself, Brienne of Tarth, wrote in, Soiled Knight own goes to Marcella for being able to handle food spicy enough to take down a grown man. And to her own chapter, own goes to Randall for making every other father in Westeros look a little nicer in comparison. Uh, Susan Sacy tweeted in, For Brienne, this chapter introduces us to Sir Clarence Crabb, the Paul Bunyan of Westeros, who at one time owned the Whispers. And for the Soiled Knight, Eris Oakheart is owned by his honor and his white cloak, no matter how hard Arianne and his libido fight it. Gary and Laos says, own to Brienne for Pod. He really should be dead in a ditch by now, but his willingness to serve has seen him through. And then also says, own for the Soiled Knight to Arianne. Eris is a lovesick puppy and she can't help herself. Grantula with spiders on his name. Oh, it's Heathen King. King of the Heathens. Getting spooky Own for Halloween. For the, the soiled knight goes to Arianne. Uh, no, that's scary. Own to the woods witch wife of Sir Clarence Crab gave the kiss of life to so many severed heads who then wouldn't shut up. Makes me think of the night bus. And own to the soiled knight goes to Dornish cooking. It burns worse coming out than it does going in. That's yep. a popular one this week. Yep. And finally, Peter Pelesny says, oh, this dude, well, his girlfriend seems pretty damn hot. I underestimated how good Dorn could be in the box. <laughs> <laughs> and well, Peter says no, that we've all we've been saying this whole episode and sums no it up in a couple sentences. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks to everyone for uh, joining us and writing in. I was pretty epic. Pretty good chapters. Pretty fun. It's October. It's a good month. Football's on. Really excited about that. Next episode, we'll have. The second brand chapter in a feast with dragons, Tyrion four and Bran. What kind of mysteries are ahead of us, guys? Only time will tell. And if you want to follow along with us, you can head to a feast with and check out the reading order and get caught up um, and check out next week's chapters. Mm -hmm. And uh, feel free to send in your owns in advance, as Zach said. Uh, for Brand 2 and Tyrion 4. You can do that in a number of ways. You can tweet at us at Game of Owns, scrawl upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or shoot us an email at contact at Game of Owns.com. Don't be tempted to read spoilers. Hashtag keep the secrets. We're all the first child. Yes. Yes. And uh, please follow along on our other podcast. If you enjoy Game of Owens, we make another podcast. It's on our Patreon page. 
If you support our show on patreon.com slash Q, you can listen to A Squad of Ice and Fire. It's Hannah's favorite podcast. That's what's up. <laughs> Zach and I are going to be in LA this week, so who knows what may happen on Squad of Ice and Fire. Mm. Also, right? I live in LA. Well, you live there always, but not me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just trying to get people hyped for Squad of Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah. Well, please get hyped for it. We have Leaky Con, so we'll be doing Harry Potter stuff, but uh, chances are there's also a lot of... Uh, kind of thrown stuff that's going to be in the works because uh when everyone's together it's a good time to work and just an update on that end uh we've been uh blessed with some fantastic help and uh it's just been a lot of a lot of fun and we're really excited to continue creating for the con as the months and uh, weeks go by it's just gonna be really excited We're, we're pumped i feel like before the pool party was what i was most excited for but now some of these uh programs and you know all the you know what i'm talking about like all the other stuff it's just like this is going to be a lot of fun yeah it's going to be amazing have you gotten the dragon permit yet working on that yeah. one thing really, really they difficult. take a little time <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. you have no idea man i thought it was gonna be so much easier to book dragons in nashville but tennessee is pretty strict on that mm-hmm. <laughs> for all the latest information on con of thrones head on over to conofthrones.com pick up a ticket we still have early bird prices you'll see why i bring up dragons because they're clearly dragons over this hotel and it's so it's a real it, picture i i yes yeah, so if you're able to get them there for the promo picture you should be able to get them there for the actual con mm-hmm. um, assuming they're not yeah, filming or doing the anything same. like that june 30th <laughs> to july 2nd in nashville be there you can find out all the information uh, that you need to on conofthrones.com. Well, that's it. I'm going to have a post going up uh, about some con stuff probably next week on Watchers on the Wall, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, if you um, enjoy Game of Thrones, please continue to listen to us. This offseason's been, I, I would argue, probably the most fun that we've had, and uh, the books just keep getting better, and these chapters stay awesome, so come back. Peace. Peace. <laughs>